This is Ron Stockton. We're starting a few lectures on uh, public opinion. I think maybe I'm going to uh, take the advice of the learning specialists and break this into four, three, four, five lectures that are shorter lectures rather than longer lectures. We'll find out. Um, um, the first uh, the first topic is going to deal with the concept of public opinion. Um, back in the 1920s, there was a man named Walter Lippmann. He was L-I-P-P-M-A-N. He was one of the best uh, uh, intellectuals around. He was a columnist for Newsweek, and I really liked him. And uh, he wrote a book called Public Opinion. And uh, um, I hadn't read that book until maybe five or six years ago. It's a famous book. Um, in there, he defined public opinion as what informed and influential people thought. So the editors of newspapers, newspaper columnists, uh, public officials, governors, um, university presidents, professors who wrote, uh, wrote books. This is public opinion. <clears throat> he would never have considered an individual opinion to be worthy of consideration. You ask someone, uh, what do you think about Iran? And the person says, oh, we need to have nuclear war against Iran. And you say, why is that? Well, they have nuclear weapons and they're threatening us. They've threatened to attack us. Uh, why do you think that? Well, I read it on the uh, on on the internet. And uh, do you know where Iran is? Well, uh, yes, it's right. It's right between uh, Israel and the United States. It touches both of them. It's that state which is which is in between them. And uh, uh, why would we pay any attention to what this person thinks? I've seen those kinds of views, by the way, on the internet. Why would we possibly care what this person thinks? This person is not uh, uh, worthy of our consideration. But in the 1930s, there was a man named George Gallup. Can you hear my phone ringing in the background? I'm not going to answer it. Um, this is the glory of delivering talks uh, uh, from, uh, from your living room. And uh, I think someone's trying to get me to vote for something or whatever. Anyway... Uh, um, there was a man named George Gallup, G-A-L-L-U-P. He's a very famous person. He's buried in Princeton. I saw his grave once. Um, Princeton University. George Gallup was a... Uh, he worked for a, an extension department, in he, an extension office in, a, um, in an agriculture department. A state uh, university had a contract with the local agriculture department. And George Gallup's job was to go around and interview every farmer in a given county to find out what the wheat crop was going to be in the coming year. So he would go around, and this took him months. He would go around and, and, and speak to each farmer and say, uh, well, how many uh, acres are you going to put in? He would do this in the spring. How many acres are you putting in in wheat? And based on that, they could predict the wheat crop. So George Gallup one day was thinking, you know, I interview, let's make up a number here. I interview 500 farmers. 
That's a lot of farmers. I wonder what would happen if I only interviewed 250 farmers. So he said, we can't risk this unless we have some idea of what the outcome would be. So here's what George Gallup did. He took a, uh, he got a bunch of beans, 500 beans. Half of them were white beans and half of them were black beans. And he put them in a jar and he mixed them up. And then, not looking, with his, with his uh, uh, eyes covered, he reached into the uh, jar and picked out 250 beans. And lo and behold, of those 250 beans, half of them were white and half of them were black. A little bit off, maybe. Instead of 125 of each, maybe there was 127 of one and 123 of the other, but close enough. And uh, he thought, well, I wonder what would happen if I only interviewed 100 people. So he put all the beans back, mixed them all up, pulled out 100, and discovered that, lo and behold, he was very close to the same proportion. So he began doing this, and he discovered that he was able to, to cover a much wider area and get totally accurate results. So George Gallup thought, if I can do this in terms of beans, I could probably do this in terms of predicting elections. So he formed the Gallup polling organization, the first of the major groups, and, uh, and began uh, uh, doing public polling. Now, in those days, Gallup thought you had to interview many, many thousands of people in order to predict an election outcome. Um, there's a very good example of this during World War II, when the army was very worried about uh, how American soldiers were going to react. When the war started, we had a professional army. And then the, it became necessary to build up to a 12 million person army. And they thought, oh my gosh, these people are being taken away from their families. Some of them are married. They, they, uh, they have kids they've left behind. What a, we do not want what the French had during World War I, when at a certain point, the French army went on strike. They said, if we're attacked, we'll fight back, but we're not going to attack anymore. This is an awful war, and our strategy isn't working. The American military was really afraid of that. So they hired this man, Stouffer, Samuel Stouffer, S-T-O-U-F-F-E-R. He was a major researcher at that time. He also wrote a book on uh, race in America, which is a, a, a fantastic book. These are big books. Stouffer decided, got a contract, and they said, would you please find out what the American soldiers think? So he wrote a book called The American Soldier, and he interviewed 30,000 people. Now, that's amazing. Today, if you, have 900, if you interview 900 people, you can tell within a couple percentage points what a national presidential election is going to be. Our techniques are so good, but in those days, they didn't know that. They really were flawed in terms of, of sampling techniques. This is called sampling. You have your population. That's everybody you could possibly interview. That's the population. And then you have your sample. Those are the people that you actually do interview. 
And the reason this works so well is that they use um, random probability uh, sampling. Okay, that's a technical term, a probability, random probability sampling. That means statistically everybody has an equal chance to be chosen. Now, how do they do that? Well, we'll come back to that in a minute. But first, I want to tell you about some studies that went really wrong and why they went wrong. And then some studies that went really right. Uh, first, a study that went really wrong was the Liberty Poll of 1932 and then the Liberty Poll of 1936. Liberty was a major magazine. It had it had a national. It was one of those really famous magazines that everybody seemed to subscribe to, and uh, and uh, uh, in 1932, it was in the depression, of course, and President Hoover was running for re-election, and uh, Franklin Roosevelt was running as a Democrat against him. Roosevelt, interestingly, he's famous for the New Deal. Roosevelt ran as a conservative. He was going to balance the budget. That was his main goal. And and so all of this that came out uh, later when he developed all these amazing programs like Social Security and job job benefits, uh, unemployment benefits, and all of those things, uh, th- those all came, came later. But uh, anyway, the uh, Liberty magazine sent a ballot uh, to everybody who was on their uh, on their subscription list. They also got a list of everybody who owned a car. Those That's public information. They sent everybody who owned a car got a ballot, and everybody who had a telephone. They got telephone books, and everybody who had a telephone. They sent to uh, uh, each of those people a ballot, and they said, what is your, uh, how are you going to vote? for Roosevelt or for Hoover. And the results came pouring in. Tens of thousands of ballots came pouring in. And they published this result the, the just before the election. And people were just electrified because, uh, because they somehow now had an idea of what was going to happen in the election. And they were absolutely on target. They said, Roosevelt is going to win. And he did. And you can imagine what happened to this as a business model. Suddenly, many, 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 many people began subscribing to Liberty Magazine because they were so fantastic in their prediction. So four years later, meanwhile, the political system in the United States had been restructured. Roosevelt ran as a conservative. He ran to balance the budget. In fact, he began instituting all these amazing social programs. He built TVA. He built a big dam system to electrify uh, the poorer states in in, in uh, Tennessee and Kentucky and places like that. Um, he built roads. He did just everything. He gave jobs. He created the WPA. All the unemployed dads were given jobs. They created the CCC camp, the Civilian Conservation Corps. All the young guys who had never had a job in their lives and never had a prospect of of, of having a job, they got they got uh, jobs. My dad was in the CCC camp. Those uh, young guys, um, farm boys, many of them, poor kids had never had enough to eat. They got taken to camps. They uh, were fed. They were given uh, nice uniforms. They had never had nice clothes before. They wore farm clothes. 
They were given nice uh, uniforms. They were fed. Many of them had never eaten regularly before. They were given health checkups. They got, they got uh, medical treatment. Many had never seen a doctor before. It was amazing. They got paid $30 a month, which was kind of what casual labor got paid. 25 of that was sent home. You had to have, to be in the CCC camp, you had to be, uh, you had to have a uh, family that needed your support. So uh, 25 of their money was spent home, sent home. $5 they got to keep for themselves, but of course, there wasn't much to spend it on. They were building roads and building parks and doing things like that. Um, my dad built a state park in Illinois. He was so proud of that. He took me and my sister there when we were kids and showed us, uh, showed us the park that he and, the, he and his buddies had built. Um, they got free movies. They got free entertainment. There really wasn't much to do with their $5. They were so proud of that. My grandfather worked to build a road once when I was a senior in high school. He said, come with me. I want to show you something. So he got in the car, and we went uh, to this road, which was uh, uh, in southern Illinois, just a little small, small road between two little towns. And it was brick. And he said, see this road? I built this road. My buddies and I in the WPA, we laid this road out. It was a beautiful road, too. Today, they've paved it over. I wish they'd kept it that way. But anyway, Roosevelt developed all these programs. He raised taxes on the rich. I mean, amazing what the man did. So, back to the Liberty Poll. They repeated the poll in 1936. Uh... Roosevelt was being opposed by the governor of Kansas, whose name was Alf Landon, L-A-N-D-O-N, Alfred Landon. And uh, he was quite a guy, but he was very conservative. He said all this uh, socialist uh, policies, you know, uh, uh, retirement benefits and old age pensions and jobs, it's all too much. We should just go back to the private sector. And... Uh, so the Liberty did the same thing. They sent ballots to all their members. They sent ballots to everybody who had a car. They sent ballots to everybody who had a telephone. And the results came in. And what it showed was Roosevelt was going to be crushed. It was going to be a, a devastating defeat for him. And, of course, his, his conservative opponents were delighted and his supporters were distressed. And then it turns out then in 1936, he had a smashing victory. Okay, wait a minute. Let's think about this for a minute now. I want you to think for a minute. Maybe you should hit the pause button when, we, when I finish asking the question and you think about this. Why was it that the Liberty Poll used a certain methodology of how they drew their sample? Remember, sample is the people that you're interviewing. And uh, it's, not, it's not, hopefully it's representative Why was it that they used that sample in 1932 and it worked? They used that very same sampling technique in 1936, and it failed catastrophically. Okay, you might want to stop and think for a minute and then come back. Okay, push the pause button if you want to think. If you don't, I'm going to give you the answer. What happened was, and we can tell this from what happened, what happened was there had been a totally restructuring of the political system. We call this a realignment. That is, we're going to talk about this in another, in another lecture. 
there was a, uh, there is a, uh, there's, what we know is that voting is very stable over time. If you're a Republican last year, you're probably going to be a Republican this year. And if you're a Democrat last year, you're probably going to be a Democrat this year. So that's called an alignment. And those alignments don't just apply to individuals. They apply to whole groups of people. For example, we know that, uh, we know that uh, working class people, industrial workers, have traditionally been Democrats and farmers have traditionally been Republicans. And we know those things. When a group of people shift from one party to another, that's called a realignment. When they stay in their predictable party, that's called an alignment. When they shift, that's called a realignment. It doesn't just mean an individual shifted. It means that a whole group of people, statistically, not every individual, statistically, they've shifted. For example, in the 1920s, African-American voters were Republicans. Can you believe that? And then they shifted and became Democrats. That's a realignment. So a realignment can occur with simple a group of people, or sometimes more than one group can shift, or sometimes one group can shift, and that will flip the party from one, flip the election from one side to the other. And since you tend to vote the same way year after year, If a realignment occurs, it may change the whole makeup of the party and it may change the dominant party. We're going to come back to that idea in a little while. So why did the, why did the Liberty Poll fail? Because there had been a realignment. Because anybody, in 1932, Roosevelt's support was very broad. By 1936, anybody who owned a car or, or a telephone or had enough money to subscribe to Liberty Magazine, probably was a Republican. And they hated Roosevelt. So the poll, which worked really well because that sample represented the, the actual vote, by 1936, it was a catastrophe. So that's why random probability sampling is important. This was not random probability sampling. It was something else. Now, let's see. There's another poll. Oh, yes. The, uh, the Truman-Dewey election of 1948. Oh, this was a, this was a, uh, a really an interesting election. Um, uh, uh, President Roosevelt was so popular. You can't believe how popular he was. And he chose Harry Truman to be his running mate. Now, it just turned out that Harry Truman was one of the best qualified people to, to, run, to, to run the country. Um, but the fact is, he, didn't, he, he was from uh, Missouri. He had an eighth grade education. He really sounded a bit like a uh, hillbilly. And he talked through his nose. And he didn't have any personality. He had a great personality, but the fact is he, he wasn't charming in the way that Roosevelt had been. So a lot of people turned against him. And then the Democrat, the Republicans nominated Thomas Dewey, D-E-W-E-Y, the, May, the governor of New York, and he was so handsome and so popular, and it just looked like he was going to win. And it looked as if Truman was going to lose. But Truman did what was called a whistle-stop campaign. He got on a train, and he just went from place to place. And every, he stopped in every little small town you can uh, imagine. And uh, 
he came through uh, southern Illinois, where, my, where, where I'm from, and stopped in this one little town, and he said, I'm just so happy to be here in this little town, and he said its name, and everybody cheered. And, and he said, uh, I'm sick and tired of those Republicans not passing any legislation. They're told they're a do-nothing Congress. They just, because uh, the Republicans had gotten control of Congress. And he said, they're, they're, they're opposing everything. I'm, I'm standing up for you and for the country, and they're opposing everything. And this kind of got a lot of attention from people. People were proud that the president had been to their stupid little town, which nobody had ever heard of. And uh, so there was a poll. A Gallup poll. And what it showed was Dewey was going to win that election. And then Truman won by a very strong margin. And there's a famous picture of uh, there's a famous uh, there's a famous picture. The Chicago Tribune was a big, big conservative newspaper, and they published a headline: "Dewey defeats Truman," because that's what everybody thought. So they thought might as well get into the streets first. So they published this uh, this newspaper with a big headline explaining how uh, how Dewey had had won and Truman had been defeated. And there's a famous picture of Truman holding up that, that uh, newspaper and, and uh, with his, uh, his fans cheering hysterically. Why did this happen? Well, polling wasn't nearly as sophisticated as it is today. And, and Gallup stopped polling about two weeks before the election because everything looked as if it was, uh, as if it was going to uh, go to Dewey. Plus, it took a long time in those days to uh, uh, to calculate the results. So if you did something just before the election, uh, you might not have the results out when the election occurs. Plus, something that hadn't that that Gallup hadn't seemed to notice or take into account. There was a very large number of people who said they hadn't made up their minds yet. Oh, my. Now, every, every poll has, of course, those are the people that shifted and, and changed the election in favor of Truman. There's a couple terms you need to know. One is that uh, is called the error. Uh, the error of a poll, every poll has an error. That doesn't mean it did something wrong. It just means that if you're choosing a, uh, a thousand people nationally and asking them how you're going to vote next Tuesday in the election, it's probable that you're going to get a little bit of a, a mistake in there somewhere. It's not a mistake. It's just that the, the sample is not going to be 100%. It's like Gallup's beans, you know, if, if it was supposed to be 250 uh, black beans and, and it turned out to be uh, 255 black beans, that's, that doesn't mean he did anything wrong. It just, it's the, the, the sampling, it's just your luck of the draw, we might say. You're just going to get uh, some, some deviations there. So, generally speaking, with a national poll, you can assume that the result is maybe 3% error. That just means 
that if you find that someone has 45% of the vote a week before the election, that could be 45 plus 3. That means their true vote, the true population. What's the population? It's everybody you could poll, right? I mean, it's everybody that, that is, that is uh, eligible to vote. So that's the population. And the sample is the people that you actually interviewed. So it could be that, there, that your sample says 45%. That means with 3% error, that means maybe the true population is 45 plus 3. That's 48. Or maybe it's 45 minus 3. That means 42. So I've seen polls in Britain where they say the poll shows 42 to 48%. We are... Our reporters would say 45%, and then they would have a little footnote, 3% error. So that's the error. The second thing is what's called the confidence interval. Okay, these are just technical terms, but they're, they're good to help you understand exactly what polling is and what it is not. Confidence interval means once in a while you just really draw an awful sample that's just not representative. So we've got, we got 9,000 students on our campus. Suppose we wanted to find out, are you, going to, uh, are you going to vote for Trump or Biden? And uh, we interview 1,000 students, and we find out that they're 50-50. Well, what that means is that if we've drawn a good sample, I mean, that is if we've used scientific techniques and picked those 1,000 people, that means that it's not 50-50. It could be 53% for one or 47 for the other. That's just normal. That doesn't mean you make anything wrong. But you know, it's possible that George Gallup, if he kept sampling over and over and over again, out of, out of, if he did that 100 times, there might be a time when he would draw a sample which was 80% black or 80% white instead of 50-50. Did he do something wrong? No, he had put a blindfold over his eyes when he picked the beans so he wasn't cheating. But just the random luck of the draw. If we've got 50% female students and 50% male students, it could be that one of our studies, we draw a sample, we could it could turn out that we have 70% female and 30% male or the other way around, and you say, whoa, you really messed up. No, we didn't mess up. It's just that once in a while, you get an odd sample. So that's called the confidence interval. So uh, what we, and, and that's different from what happened, that's different from what happened in the Liberty Poll. They just didn't take into account. They did not have a representative sample. They were sampling people who were natural Republicans, except they didn't know that. So these are some things to keep in mind. Now, what happened with uh, the Truman-Dewey poll was that they stopped sampling. And there were a large number of people who hadn't made up their minds. And those people broke overwhelmingly for Harry Truman. Okay, let's go to one of the great turning points in polling history. John Kennedy is running against Richard Nixon in 1960. Oh, this was so close. 
This was uh, right neck and neck to the very end. Kennedy had a pollster named uh, Harris. He was one of the really good pollsters in those days. But uh, Harris uh, came in to Kennedy a uh, week before the election and sat down with him and laid out all the charts. And uh, he said, here's what we've discovered. It's 48, uh, it's 48 for Nixon, 47 for you. Then there are 5% undecided, which means you are going to win the election. And Kennedy said, wait, wait, do that again. I, th I think I misunderstood you. Well, I said 48 for Nixon, 47 for you, 5% undecided. That means you're going to win. And Kennedy says, this doesn't make sense. Explain this to me. And Harris said, well, we've done an analysis of those people who say they're undecided, and they're really not undecided. They only think they're undecided. These are Democrats. They always vote for the Democratic Party, and they're going to vote for you. So you're going to win this election by a very thin margin, but you're going to win. And that's exactly what happened. Now, this is really sophisticated polling, isn't it? That the undecideds, pollsters know ahead of the undecideds how the undecideds are going to vote. Isn't this interesting? 